When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining. Today on The Joseph Carlson Show, the stock market shakeout is likely not over yet, even with Friday's comeback. That's what a lot of pros are saying. I want to share my thoughts on this. On Thursday and Friday, we have something interesting happen. Basically, the stock market across all different industries and all different sectors, all the indexes went down quite a bit. The NASDAQ, full of those tech stocks that have had the huge run-ups, it went down like 5%. And then the S&P 500 dropped, the Dow Jones dropped, that even followed into Friday. So I want to talk about why this happens. A lot of people are confused in the market. They see people pouring into stocks to quickly have them reversed and to go back like a month in time. Why does this happen? Well, I think I know the answer. I think it has to do a lot with momentum investing. So we're going to be talking about momentum investing, the reasons that it can switch so quickly. And we also have news that some firms might have played a role with this huge tech melt-up. SoftBank which is a Japanese conglomerate. It's an investment firm worth about $100 billion. They were unmasked by the Financial Times as the NASDAQ whale. They actually put large option bets, call options on huge tech companies like Amazon, Netflix, uh, Tesla, Apple. And they basically made a huge bet that these companies were going to continue running up with momentum. They did call options as well as buy a lot of the stock. And anytime the stock would be dropping, they'd be buying more of it. It's basically a legal form of market manipulation. It's a very dangerous thing for them to do. But this story reveals in part what momentum investing is and why some of those stocks probably got bid up as much as they did. So we'll be looking at this story. And then we have a follow-up from something that I did in the previous episode. I looked at the news that Warren Buffett was buying store capital. This is one of my holdings, and it's now moved to one of my bigger holdings because I've followed Warren Buffett into this purchase. I did a lot of research over the past week of why he keeps buying store capital. He initiated a position in 2017, and even with the coronavirus and all the concerns, as store capital dropped, Warren Buffett purchased more and more of it. So I want to go over why I think that he's buying this company and why I'm following him into this purchase. So we have all that news to get to, plus we have my portfolio, the passive income portfolio worth about $122,000 right now. I'm going to go over all the companies that I purchased the previous week and the ones that I'm purchasing starting Tuesday of next week. So we'll be talking about all my buys, what I'm doing with my portfolio, as well as answering comments and questions. We got some interesting ones the previous week, so I'll be responding to those as well. Now, before getting into that news, I have to mention that the Investor Tier All Access Patreon is free for this month. So if you join right now, you will not be charged until next month. You'll get the month of September for free. This gives you a chance to try it out. You basically get a lot of exclusive content. There's exclusive episode series that I'm doing, screenshots of every buy and sell I do. You get access to a community Discord that has nearly a thousand active investors. And then a bunch of other stuff. Like we're building a, a dividend tracking website. I have active developers working on it that we're, we're pushing out new features all the time. So it's a pretty cool thing. You can try it out for free. There's a link in the description of this video if you want to join. Now, I first want to talk about what I think is the main subject for this week, which is the rapid market sell-off that was somewhat unexpected and what caused that. We had on Thursday, the S&P 500 dropping 4%. 
the Dow Jones dropping 3.29%, and then the tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped a whopping 5%. This is all within a couple hours. Every major index took a beating. These declines continued into Friday, and many of the biggest winners of the past few months were those that saw the steepest sell-off. Apple, for instance, a stock that was up 23% in the past 30 days, a stock that has expanded from a 27 PE ratio to a 40 PE ratio in a matter of months, sold off over 8% in a few hours. Tesla, a stock that's up nearly six times its market value in the last four months, has now in a matter of days sold off over 18% of its market cap, dropping its value over $70 billion in the process. The same type of declines could be seen across a bunch of different sectors and different stocks. But what was special about Thursday? Why was there such an intense shift in the market spurring this downturn? That was a question that I had. I woke up Thursday morning and saw the stock market. And what I did was I checked the Wall Street Journal. I checked CNBC. There must have been negative economic news that was the catalyst for this dramatic sell-off. Well, there wasn't. In fact, the only significant economic news of the day was the weekly jobs report. That was it. A positive jobs report. In fact, the jobs report was much better than expected. Thursday morning was like any other morning. The sun rose. More people found jobs and lost jobs. Nothing truly notable happened other than the unexpected precipitous decline in equity prices. That was the only unexpected thing that happened. And the question is why? Why does this type of thing happen? What would cause, without any perceivable warning, this type of change in investor sentiment? What causes investors to shift from bulls that so far have been completely indifferent to prices and fueled by exuberance over the past few months, who have been shoveling money into stocks as fast as they get their paychecks, to suddenly be transformed into timid bears They're scared of the market now. Well, I have a a theory of what I think causes this. I think it's momentum. Momentum investing. It's the most powerful force in the market. People will tell you, for instance, they'll say they care about the underlying holding. They'll tell you the bull case for a stock. They'll speak of the future of the company. And they're basically rationalizing their purchases. They're saying, this is the reason that I purchased this company. But do people really invest because of that? Are people really buying all these companies just because of the underlying asset? Do they look at the revenue growth of the company? Do they look at the year-over-year trends of it? Do they really look at the underlying asset as a whole? Or do they invest because of momentum? I think that there's a large portion of people in the market right now that they're buying basically 100% off of momentum. They buy into stocks late into run-ups at high valuations because they want to take part in the gains that have already been had. Once the green line starts to ascend and gains accelerate, people look at the previous gains made and they have the fear of missing out. If it went up 50%, it can go up another 50%. There's a saying in investing, what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. Those who purchase these shares early with a real investment thesis were rewarded for their analysis and their vision of the company. But those who have purchased late, buying without any anchor evaluation on the hopes that others will do the same after them, they're taking a lot of risk. This is momentum investing, buying stocks purely based on the presumption that fear and greed will cause others to do the same, therefore pushing the price up further and further. And then if you bought because of momentum, you're going to sell because of momentum. You believe that you're smart enough and perceptive enough to sell when the tides turn and you sell out before others do. This is a a tough thing to do, but I think this is making up a large portion of the market. Everybody entering in right now wants to make money. So they're looking at the stocks that have raced up and they're saying that is where the money is. 
I want to put my money in these stocks, even after they've gone up five times in value, six times in value. People are still buying them in hopes that they can continue on with that momentum. This is something that Warren Buffett has talked about repeatedly throughout his career as a very dangerous thing to do. So I'm going to go in this year. So they're always looking in the rearview mirror. And when they look in the rearview mirror and they see a lot of money having been made in the last few years, they plow in and they just push and push and push on prices. And when they look in the rearview mirror and they see no money having been made, they just say, this is a lousy place to be. So they don't care what's going on in the underlying business. This is a lecture that Warren Buffett gave in 2001. This is a long time ago, and I think he's accurately describing a large portion of new investors. They look in the rearview mirror. They see where money has been made previously, and they say that's where the money is. So you see stocks that have been racing upwards. You put more and more money in it in hopes that it will continue racing upwards. What you're not paying attention to is the company itself, what the actual value of it is. And a lot of the people that have done the best with these companies, with companies like Tesla, are the early buyers. There's firms like Kathy Wood's ARK Invest. She bought Tesla before this run-up. And all she's been doing ever since this run-up is selling Tesla and buying other companies. Now, Tesla's an easy one to point out as a momentum stock. It's clearly trading in large part because of momentum. I think it's incredibly dangerous to jump into that stock right now. Most of the people, again, that had real investment theses, that are real believers in Tesla, they bought it a long time ago when it was much cheaper. But we don't see Tesla as the only stock this is happening to. With Apple, you can see the same thing happening to it. I purchased Apple at an average share price, about $87 a share. That was my share price. And I thought that it was kind of expensive, but it wasn't anything unreal. At the time, it was trading at a 27 PE ratio. It was a little bit higher than where it was previously this year. But since then, after Apple started to climb up more and more, that's when people became interested in it. After Apple started to race up, I got more and more questions of if I should buy it. After it went up 30%, another 40%, more and more people asked, should I buy Apple? More people get interested in a stock, the higher the price increases. And I think that's a dangerous sign for investors when more people are interested in buying it when it's already raced up in price. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying to not buy Tesla or to not buy Apple. This isn't a video saying to avoid these type of stocks. I actually think these are two of the best companies in the world. I'm highlighting them as an example of two companies that I've seen the valuations race up like crazy. Now, it's fine buying these companies, but I think people should look at the reason that they're buying these companies. For instance, a lot of people that bought Tesla really early, there's people that literally bought it at $200 a share and they held it for years, even though it wasn't moving at all. They are not momentum investors. They are value investors. You can call them growth investors, but they're really value investors because they invested in Tesla at a low price point based off of its future growth potential. They're looking at value in the company. They believe that the future cash flow far outweighs the current price. That's value investing. People that are investing right now, I think are definitely not value investors. And I think a lot of them are inadvertently momentum investors. They might not know it, but they are momentum investors. This is a natural strategy. The strategy is to capitalize on the continuance of an existing market trend. Basically, you look at the historical performance of a company like Tesla. You say that it's been going up 10% a month, and I want to get in on this. I'm sick of sitting on the sidelines. So you jump in, and it's just a gamble. You're hoping that the market trend continues upwards. Now, one large group that is a momentum investor is SoftBank. SoftBank is this Japanese conglomerate. They control about a $100 billion investment fund, and they have been unmasked to be the NASDAQ whale. 
this big whale that's been buying tech stocks and taking advantage of momentum. In one part of the Financial Times report on this, it says, quote, it's just a levered punt on the market, said one person with direct knowledge of the trades. The whole strategy is just momentum buying. That's how he described it. But the Wall Street Journal goes on to describe it as even more than just momentum buying. They're actually the ones creating a large part of the momentum with these stocks. It says that regulatory filings show SoftBank bought nearly $4 billion of shares in tech giants such as Amazon, Microsoft, and Netflix this spring, plus a stake in Tesla. Not included in those disclosures is the massive options trade. SoftBank bought a roughly equal amount of call options tied to the underlying shares it bought, as well as on other names. This allows SoftBank to profit from near-term run-ups in stocks and then reap those profits by unloading its position to willing counterparts. So this looks like a very risky bet that SoftBank was doing. They're basically buying call options on all these really expensive companies, all the tech companies, and then they're also buying an equivalent amount of stock of those companies to help spur momentum with them in hopes that people will continue buying them if they continue going up in price. So SoftBank was doing both ends, buying call options, buying shares of the company, doing everything they can to push these stocks up further and further so that they can unload their positions once it meets a certain price point. It notes here that they haven't even exited their position. It says, aside from the sharp pullback in equity markets at the end of last week, the huge derivative bet on the selected U.S. stocks has worked, leaving SoftBank with a large but as of yet unrealized profits. However, a continued fall in the U.S. stock market could eat away at SoftBank's returns. So SoftBank still has a bet on these companies, and my guess would be that they're going to double down on it. They're going to continue investing in it, trying to push the price up to where they were about a week ago. And then they probably could start unwinding their positions from there. So this has been an interesting story showing that one big company can stoke an entire tech rally and really help move it along. Now, I want to go over my portfolio and talk about one of the purchases I'm making in one position in my real estate pie. This is Store Capital. It's a follow-up from the previous episode I did. Basically, there's been news that Warren Buffett has continued to buy Store Capital. This is a net lease REIT. I have two of them. There's Realty Income Corp. and then there's Store Capital. And I went on a search, a pursuit to find out why Warren Buffett likes this company so much. There's something about it where Berkshire really likes Store Capital. He likes it much more than Realty Income Corp or NNN, or any of the other REITs. So I did some research. I read articles by the CEO of the company on Seeking Alpha. He has multiple articles. I went through and read their fact sheet, their quarterly reports. I listened to interviews from the leaders of their company to try to find out the reasons that Warren Buffett was investing in it. And I am convinced the reason that Warren Buffett is investing in store capital is because of that guy right there, Christopher Volk. Christopher Volk is the founder of Store Capital. He's a current CEO of it. He's ran two previous companies that both have had market-beating returns. His previous work was an investment banker, but I am convinced that this guy understands real estate to a whole new level. The more I read about him, the more I'm convinced he's incredibly good at real estate. Here's an article that he wrote on Seeking Alpha, open to the public, which is not something that I see CEOs even do. There's not that many that are willing to do this on Seeking Alpha or any type of public forum. Give a simple article and an update about their company, the growth prospects, how they're going to create alpha for the investor, all this type of stuff. He openly does that. He opens himself up to criticism. This is March 17th, an open letter from the CEO of Store Capital. Keep in mind, he published this article after Store Capital had recently suffered a 61% decline in value. He came out and published an article publicly after this 61% decline. Most CEOs would be hiding under their desk. 
they wouldn't want to do anything with the public. But Christopher Volk comes out with an article on Seeking Alpha explaining how people are misunderstanding his company and describing the position that they're in. In one part of it, he has it titled, Our Stock Price. As I write this letter to you, our share price is being dragged down with the broader markets and now is only slightly in excess of where it stood at November of 2014 initial public offering. Per the earlier paragraph, our AFFO per share back then was actually 43% less. Our dividend was 40% less. Our dividend was less protected. We had a single triple B negative corporate rating, and we're now triple B rating from three different agencies. We had 947 properties. We now have 2,504 properties, and we had 50 employees. We now have 97 incredible people. Quantitatively and qualitatively, Store is a far better company today than when it was introduced to the public in 2014. It goes on to say, given the pressure on our share price, many of us at Store have recently purchased shares, which reflect our just confidence in our business model and our customers. I wish I would have listened to him when I read this first article, because since this article was published, the total return of Store is up 89%. He just published another article on Seeking Alpha, open to the public. I would recommend anybody that's interested in real estate or REITs to read this article. It's on Seeking Alpha right now. Just search store and you'll see this article here. It's him laying out his case for investing in his company. He argues that store is still widely undervalued, that there's too much pessimism priced into the stock, that their dividend is well covered. They're collecting more rent every single month. And there's a lot of inefficiencies in the real estate market that they're taking advantage of. He says that the risk-adjusted returns for store is going to be superior to other companies. And he explains in detail, in a very detailed article, why he thinks this is the case. And I read through this whole article, and it is pretty convincing. One of the biggest points that Christopher Volk brings up is that store capital does not make a habit of focusing on investor-grade tenants. And because of that, investors heavily discount store capital compared to other competitors. For instance, you can look at store capital's portfolio, and there's a lot of companies that I don't really recognize. Some pet daycare companies, some science companies I don't recognize, some random car wash places. There's some companies you might recognize. We got a Burger King. But then we have other companies that I really don't recognize the name of them. They are not investment-grade companies. And because of that, investors don't want to invest in store because they think these companies are less likely to pay their rent. When you compare it to something like Realty Income Corp, you look at their top tenants and we got Walgreens, 7-Eleven, Dollar General, FedEx, Dollar Tree, LA Fitness. You recognize every one of these tenants. Walmart, Lifetime Fitness, all of them are investment grade tenants. And that's the reason that something like Realty Income Corp is traded at a higher multiple than store capital. What Christopher Volk argues is that that is not the most important thing when looking at tenants to rent to. He says if you look at the actual returns you're getting, you'll get higher returns renting to an Ashley Furniture, which is not investment grade, than you would a company like Home Depot, which is investment grade. This is something that investors in real estate do not understand. Here he is in an interview in 2017, and he goes over what he thinks are the biggest mistakes investors make when they're looking at different real estate companies to invest in. They make two key mistakes. Um, the first thing um, is what I just talked about, which is they assume that pretty real estate is good real estate. Um, I mean, if it's pretty real estate, it must be a good investment. I mean, you know, how many real estate investment trusts throw up on, on a screen some picture of some, you know, <laughs> you know moth-eaten piece of real estate? I mean, they're going to show a picture of a really nice piece of real estate, and, and everybody's going to look at it and think, wow, you own that? That's, this is really good. But they're not going to know what they paid for it or anything, right? So, so the question is, is a pretty piece of real estate a good piece of real estate? 
Um, and the second thing, or, and by the way, a good investment. So that's the first mistake he says investors are doing, is looking at how appealing the real estate looks. And if you go to Realty Income Corp's website, it does have some pictures of some really beautiful real estate. You have Home Depot, you have 7-Eleven, you have all these really nice buildings that, you know, they look really impressive. And you go, I want to own a piece of that. So that's a natural bias we have. Of course, if it looks really nice, we'll think that it's better investments. But I think the second point he makes is an even bigger mistake that investors are making when they're looking at investing in REITs. And this is something that I focused on before as well. He highlights that you should not be focusing on the credit quality of the tenants that the REIT rents to, because that's not the most important thing. In fact, he explains why he'd rather rent to Ashley Furniture than he would Home Depot when Home Depot is an investment-grade company with a lot higher credit rating than Ashley Furniture. So he's going to explain why he'd choose Ashley Furniture. Uh, and the second thing is they assume that the credit quality of the tenant uh, drives the desirability of the assets. So, so show of hands, you know, and I can't see everybody because i got light, lights here, but if you, if you had a choice and, and you could own like a Home Depot or an Ashley Furniture store, you know, what do you want to own? The Home Depot. Who's raising their hand for Home Depot? A lot of hands up. I said, okay, Ashley. Nobody. And then the rest of you, the rest of you might have been the smartest. The guys that didn't raise their hands might have been the smartest because it's sort of a trick question, right? Because um, to say, do I want to own an Ashley or Home Depot assumes that everything's equivalent, and they're not. You know? So it turns out that if you're going to buy a Home Depot, for example, uh, you can oftentimes pay twice the real estate, the, the price for the real estate that it, you could buy the Ashley for. In other words, you know, the, the Home Depot might cost you know, uh, $8 million to build, but you're paying $15 million for the asset. Um, uh, and, and you're paying it because you're buying a sort of a stream for an investment-grade company. Um, so, you, so first of all, you're paying more for the real estate, which basically means if you ever get it back, if it's ever empty or the lease expires, it's going to be, it's going to be dreadfully difficult to, to deal with, with, with what to do with it. The second is um, uh, Home Depot will virtually never give you property-level profit and loss statements. That you just don't know. So you could be owning a store not knowing whether it makes any money or not. And that, this is very important. You know, most people think that the credit pays you the rent. Does not. Um, the store pays you the rent. And you know this because whether it's in Canada or in the U.S., when companies go bankrupt, they jettison all the, uh, the stores that don't make any money and they keep the ones that are making money. So, so for the landlords that actually know whether the stores are making money or not, those landlords have the front seat. They know exactly what's going on. For Home Depot, you'd have to pay a lot more for the actual property, and Home Depot will not disclose to the landlord how much money that property is actually making, when Ashley Furniture would disclose that. So every property that he owns, he has full knowledge of how much money that individual property is making, so he knows whether he should be concerned or not. If those places are profitable, they're going to be able to pay rent. But if those places are not profitable, it doesn't really matter the credit quality of the overall business, that puts them in trouble. If they are renting to properties that aren't profitable, that puts them in a difficult position. And then the third point he highlights is that with something like Ashley Furniture, you can do what's called a master lease. You can structure a much stronger agreement with the tenant. You can't do this with Home Depot. They won't do a master lease. 
So if you buy the Ashley store, you're going to get the unit level P&L. You're not necessarily going to get it for the Home Depot. You probably won't get it. Um, also, you, you know, we tend to do about 80% of our stuff in what's called master leases. So that's where you have, let's say, 10 Ashley stores, but you have one lease that covers all 10 of them. And, and the reason you like that is because you know that over time, not all 10 of them are going to be profitable. I mean, the, you know, the, the store level profitability comes in waves. So if uh, if I have 10 of them wrapped up together, if they ever file for bankruptcy, they can't cherry pick me as a landlord on uh, which stores they want. They got to take all 10 of them. But uh, Home Depot won't let you do that. With 80% of the leases Store Capital has, they have master leases, which is a much stronger form of a contract than what they would be able to get with an investment grade company. He then goes on to explain that credit quality is transient. It changes. Credit quality of a company can go up and down. You might think a company's in very good standing right now, like a Home Depot but times can change. A lot of companies that we thought were very strong have become weak. So the contract quality between the tenant and the landlord is more important than the credit quality of the company. If you had been owning Kmart, hypothetically, in, in uh, 2000, uh, you would have had an investment grade credit. Um, uh, you would have been feeling very self-confident. And then about 18 months later, they would have filed for bankruptcy. And uh, you would have learned then and there, whether your store made money, because they would they just give you back all the stores don't make any money. Um, or they go to landlords and they ask for rent reductions. Um, uh, so credit is a transient thing. I mean, they, the other thing is that we own these assets for 15 years. I mean, our leases are 15 to 20 years long. So um, the probability that Home Depot becomes a non-rated credit over 10 years uh, is probably 60%. You know, the probability they become non-rated over, uh, you know, 15 years is even less than that, is even more than that. So the credit rating today is not the thing I really need to focus on. And so the people that own Home Depots, if you have three sources of payment, the first being the real estate, because if you get the real estate back, then you want to have good real estate. So people buy the Home Depots, they overpay for the real estate. They have no idea of the unit level profitability, which is the principal source of payment. And they're riding solely on the credit, which is transient. And so you need to focus on all three things. And and, you know, for my money, I'd rather have the Ashley. Uh, and, I'd, and on top of that, the risk-adjusted rates of return are, are so much better. So these are the type of things that he tries to point out as market inefficiencies. The reason that store capital isn't priced as well as other REITs is because he says there's a lot of biases with investors. They focus on the quality of the real estate, not the profitability of it. They focus on the investment grade tenants, not the contract quality. And he says the contract quality is much more important. So he believes he'll have better risk-adjusted returns. He goes on to explain that another reason that he sees that store capital trades underneath what its other competitors do is because REIT investors look at reputation. They look at the history of the company, and store capital is a pretty new company. We'll catch up from multiple perspectives, just reputationally. REIT guys love reputation. Um, uh, but your average REIT analyst can't calculate a peg ratio. They don't know what growth is. Um, uh, you know, REIT guys are driving in a car and they basically have a sunshade in front of the windshield and they're looking out the rearview mirror all the time, which is what, you know, valuation of real estate is. I mean, they're not looking forward at all. Um, uh, whereas the guys um, buying Tesla today are looking, they have no rearview mirror. <laughs> they, I'm not sure what they're seeing, but they're, they're looking far out, out there to, uh, to come up with a valuation. And I wish those guys would buy our stock and load up, <laughs> but, uh, but, but there you have it. That is, that's the difference. So, um, so part of why we're trading behind 
behind them is that we're middle market. We're unabashedly middle market. We're you know we're buying middle market and larger companies um, that are not rated, uh, and that and we're making a point of doing that. Uh, so there's a, a, a bias again. There's an investor bias to, to nice tenants. You know um, we're the new kids on the block in the sense we've only been public since 2011. In the REIT market, people like old kids on the block. Uh, so uh, if you go to the we- the websites of a lot of REITs, it'll tell you what they did, like how much their uh, what their returns have been over the last 20 years. You know, you guys are shareholders. You shouldn't care what they did over the last 20 years. You want to know what they're doing over the next five years. You know, and and uh, for the people that want to know what they're going to do over the next five years, they should buy our stock. If you want to know what somebody's doing over the last 20 years, buy their stock. So I agree with him. I think there are a lot of biases with investors preventing them from investing in store capital as opposed to other REITs. So I think that he's right. And I think the reason why Warren Buffett is investing in this company is because of Christopher Volk. If I had to make a guess, I think that he is the reason Warren Buffett has invested in this company. Store capital has recovered quite a bit since its downturn. It's gone up 90% since its lowest point but it's still 30% down from where it was at its highest point. I think that store capital will eventually get back to that highest point. So I've invested an additional $500 into store capital this previous week, and I'm trimming my position a little bit, $1,000 in Well Tower and LTC properties, which is going to be put into store capital. So that's moving money out of two healthcare REITs into store capital because I see more upside with it. I like Christopher Volcker's leadership. I think it does have a pretty good future. So that's some changes I'm making with Store Capital. I'm going to be putting a lot more money into this company. Right now, it already makes up one of my biggest holdings, but it should be bumped up to like the second or third biggest holding after these buys. Store Capital right now also has a 5% dividend yield. So every purchase I make of this company does raise the overall yield of my portfolio, brings in more income that I can reinvest back into different companies. A 5% yield is really good right now. Treasury bonds and fixed income instruments are yielding next to nothing. So having a company that has the growth potential of store capital, plus it's yielding 5%, I think is very good. Like every type of REIT, it has a lot of risk associated with it. It's real estate. It can go up and down in value quickly. But I think that store capital is a good bet, and I'm going to continue putting money into it. My real estate pie overall is still in the red. So I've lost a lot of money in market gains. The earned dividends of $1,300 has helped fill in that gap. So overall, I'm down about $910 in real estate. And you can see with this graph over time, how volatile real estate is. Look how jagged this graph is. It goes up like crazy and then back down and then back up. This is a a sector that is highly volatile. So when you're investing in real estate, I think you only should make it a certain portion of your portfolio because just looking at it over time, it is a very volatile form of investing. But I do plan on getting this back into the green. I think within the next couple months, we'll continue to make progress. Hopefully we'll be in the green soon with real estate. Overall, the portfolio has been continuing to trend in the right direction. The previous week, I was doing really well until Thursday and Friday when the market decided to have a big reversion that sent us back a couple weeks. So last week, I'm down $2,000. That's not too bad of losses, 1.72%. Could have been a lot worse, but we didn't have too much exposure to the companies that really had a pullback. Apple was one of them that had a pullback, but a lot of the companies I hold really weren't too affected. So overall, we continue to make gains. In the past 30 days, I'm up $315 in dividends and a market gain of $6,000. And then all time, my portfolio is up $14,500. So I'll continue to keep you updated with this and let you know what companies I'm buying. 
Okay, let's respond to some comments and emails. The email address is joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. The first one is from John. He says, hey, Joseph, love your show. It has been interesting to hear your take on current events and changes you have made to your portfolio. I'm a university student in my final year of school with an unusual introduction to investing. My investing journey began inadvertently while trying to be cool in high school. Around this time, I began a collection of Air Jordan shoes, and I've seen the money invested in my sneakers collectively grow massively while also getting to wear cool shoes. I've recently sold all but a few pairs of sneakers, netting a nice profit of about $8,000, and I'm looking to start a real portfolio now. Prior to writing you this email, I've only invested a couple hundred dollars into the stock market, not counting some ill-advised but profitable ventures with Wall Street bets. My question for you is how do you develop a stomach for investing? I know it is something I will have to do to have any success in this, but I find it very hard to not sell out of things when they go down. I also find myself checking apps and share prices a lot too. I think part of the problem for me is that it feels so intangible and disconnected from my own life. For example, if a stock goes up a couple percent, it isn't life-changing just because I don't have very much invested. But if a stock goes down, it feels really bad because I know how hard I worked for that money I have invested. This is a stark contrast to my prior investment portfolio of shoes, where I was not constantly being bombarded with information about new prices and news, but also had a tangible good that I wanted and felt provided me value. Is there any hope for me long-term in the stock market? Is my current strategy of uninstalling the app between uses advisable? Well, John, I think this is a really good question. Out of everything you can learn to do with investing, learning what companies to pick, learning what ETFs to invest in, you know, how to value companies, how to look up PE ratios, all of that is okay, it's important, but something that's really, really important that goes with every investor is the ability to hold on to good investments during downturns. That is something you have to learn as an investor. There's no way around it. Whether you invest in broad market indexes, at some point they're going to go down And if you sell during the downturns, you are probably going to lose a lot of money. There's recently a post on the financial independence uh, subreddit. This is like a day ago. The title of it is Confession, I Panicked, It Cost Me a Lot, Don't Let It Happen to You. This is basically somebody that throughout his life had accumulated a lot of wealth through stocks. They invested a lot and built up a portfolio worth over a million dollars. Now he lost about $300,000 as opposed to just doing nothing. Basically what happened was... During the downturn, he moved all of his stocks to treasuries. And because he did that, he didn't participate in a large part of the market recovery. If he would have just kept his same holdings, he would now have $300,000 more than he currently does. He says in this post, to put this in perspective, that money invested would pay for college tuition for my two children just about anywhere for four years when they turn 18. That loss will likely push off my retirement by three to five years. Or if I keep the same target date, I'll have to spend about $25,000 less a year in retirement. Or I could have just quit my job, bought a yacht, and sailed the world for the last five months and have been better off. This is all hindsight 2020 stuff, but it does show that the consequences of selling out at a loss, panicking during a downturn, can be very severe. $300,000 is a lot of money, and he would have that much more money if he would have just not panicked, if he would have just stayed invested. So there's a couple pieces of advice I can give on this front. If you want to avoid selling on a downturn, I think there's some easy things you can do to at least help you prevent doing that. One of them is have a savings. If you have a good savings, if you don't have to worry about upcoming bills, then it makes it less stressful to keep a certain amount of money in your stocks. I have a savings. So when the stock market went down like 44% and my portfolio went down quite a bit, I didn't feel any pressure to sell. None at all. 
I thought, well, I have plenty of savings. I have time. I do have an income. I wasn't worried about it. Even if I had lost my job or my income, I still would not have had to sell out of my stocks. So the first thing you can do to avoid panic selling is build up some stability, build up a savings, make sure that you have something to rely on, that your stocks isn't your only form of of wealth. So that would be the first thing I'd do. The second thing that I'd do is adjust your risk. If you feel nervous when we have little miniature downturns, like we saw on Thursday or Friday, if that makes you nervous of the holdings that you have or your portfolio, that is a clear sign that you have not adjusted the level of risk in your portfolio to match your personal risk tolerance. You need your portfolio to match yourself. You need it to match your risk tolerance. If your portfolio is far more risky than you're able to tolerate, that is a mismatch and that's going to cause you to sell during a downturn. So if we do have a downturn of 50% and your portfolio has a one beta and it goes down 50%, that means that you're just following along with the market. And if you're not able to take on the same risk as the market, you should not have a portfolio that follows the market. You should have more of it in treasuries, more of it in fixed income, things that trade a little bit differently. So the second step would be controlling for risk, making sure that it matches your personal risk tolerance. I think the last thing I'd mention is just gaining experience, and that takes time. If you're in the market and you're brand new, you'll find out very quickly that it is highly volatile. You never know what's going to happen. You will be in the red at some point, likely, if you're just starting out, uh, and that can take time to get used to. But as you gain more experience with it, I think you grow a tolerance to it. So I'm at the point where I think I have a high tolerance to it, even investing for just the past two years. A lot of crazy stuff has happened. So I'm used to the constant news cycle. I'm used to stocks going up and down like crazy, not knowing what's going to happen. It's just something that you gain experience to. So those three things, I think building up a savings is important, dialing your risk level of your portfolio to your personal risk tolerance, and then just gaining experience. I think those are probably the three most important things you can do to avoid selling out in a panic. As far as your strategy of uninstalling the app, that's not something that I would do. You might want to turn off notifications if you're getting market updates all the time, but I'd keep the app installed. You have a lot of money in it, at least I do in my financial apps, so I do like to have them installed and check them to make sure everything's running smoothly with them. Victor says, hi, Joseph. I've been watching you for a while now, and I must say there are some interesting opinions, thoughts, and ideas on your channel. The way you are managing your portfolio is excellent from my point of view, and I'm glad that you are sharing all of that with us. I appreciate that, Victor. You say, for the most part, I agree with what you are saying, but there's one thing that goes from one episode to another that I want to make a comment about, not saying I am right or you are wrong, but giving you a different perspective and want to hear your opinions. Victor, I'm already on to you. You're about to tell me where I'm wrong. Don't don't try to fool me, Victor. You come in with your compliments, saying that my show's great and you love how I'm managing my portfolio. And that you're not saying that I'm right or that you're wrong, but giving a different perspective. You can't fool me, Victor. I'm already on the defensive now. Anyway, let me go ahead and read the rest of this. You say, you've been talking about Disney streaming service for quite a lot and how you have a lot of room for growth in the streaming world. At one of your shows, you mentioned more than a billion people that are still out there to be attracted by these streaming companies, Netflix, HBO, and Disney. Here is where I have a different view. Yes, there are a lot of people in the world that have no accounts, But in my opinion, that is for a reason. I don't know the exact numbers, but probably half of the population in the world cannot afford $10 for streaming services every month. In some countries that I have visited not that while ago, $10 is a lot of money. Also, Netflix with 180 million subscribers 
it's 193 million as last reported. But you say Netflix with 180 million subscribers does not represent 180 million people. But in my opinion, far more. I know at least dozens of people that share their Netflix accounts with their parents, siblings, and friends, etc. There's a lot of other ways that content can be shared that I would not go into at this moment. You might be pointing out there with that sentence, the other ways that content can be shared that you won't go into. You might be pointing out piracy, which is definitely a way that Netflix's content gets shared. That is something that Netflix itself actually lists out on their investment relation website as one of their primary competitors, piracy. They say that if piracy becomes more normalized, more common amongst the the world, that it's going to be a growing competitor that can hamper their growth. So um, I agree with everything you're saying for the most part. You say the point being is that, yes, the room for growth is always there, but there's a lot of competition. And unless one of the big three streaming services doesn't let down their users, the growth in all of them will drastically slow in comparison to the last seven years for a few reasons. One, people will have more options to choose. The new users will be more or less split equally among the big three. It is entertainment. So in hard times, like at the moment, a lot of layoffs, people losing their job, the last thing to people's mind will be to sign a streaming services. Three, 5G might change the game like we haven't seen before. This is just speculation that it can go either or. And if you or your viewers find this odd, I would totally understand. Anyway, thanks for reading and sharing and waiting for your new show. Keep up the good work. Okay, Victor. Well, I really appreciate the email. Let me go through some of the the points that you brought up. I do agree with a lot of it. You actually say 180 million subscribers does not represent 180 million people. That is absolutely true. You and your friends that are sharing accounts is not something rare. Netflix knows about that. That has been part of their business strategy from the beginning. I share my Netflix account. Basically, everybody I know that has Netflix shares their account with one more person. Netflix has done that. They haven't officially laid out their reasons for doing that, but I've tried to see why they allow sharing when they know full well that everybody's sharing their accounts. And I think it's because of retention. I think the retention rate when their accounts are shared is much, much higher. If you look at it, there's got to be times where you have a Netflix account and you haven't really watched anything for like the past month. And if it was just you that had the account, you might say, well, you know, I'm not getting a whole lot of use out of this. I haven't watched a lot of shows over the past month, so I might just cancel it and save the $12 a month, right? But you're sharing it with someone else. So that's the way you justify to yourself keeping that account. You think, well, I haven't used it a whole lot, but my parents that I'm sharing it with probably have. They probably watched stuff in the past month, so I'll just keep it going. Sharing accounts lets people rationalize keeping their Netflix account, even if they themselves are not using it. Because it's shared amongst multiple people, that makes it so that it's harder to justify canceling it on the basis that you're not using it. So that's definitely true that it it does represent more people. For instance, Netflix is closing in on being mostly saturated in the US. So I think that's a good point. Another point you make, though, is the $10 for streaming every month. Netflix knows full well that not every country is going to be able to afford the same thing at the same price point. And they will lower the price point based on the culture and the countries that they're trying to do business with. So they might charge $12 to the U.S., knowing that that's where the market is. That's what people are willing to pay for it. But then over in Africa or South America or other places, they might charge a far lower rate. So Netflix will adjust the price based off of where the culture is, where the economy is, And then they will adjust it upwards as needed. As the economy grows and those places develop, they'll increase the price like they have in the US. And even with the number inflation of people sharing Netflix accounts, I think that there's still a lot of growth ahead of them. They estimate that in the US, there's about 60% of US households that have Netflix. 
So even the U.S. is not totally saturated yet. And outside of the U.S., it's way lower than that. Most households do not have Netflix outside of the U.S. So there is a tremendous amount of growth, even with people sharing accounts. I do think that there's going to be growing competition. There's going to be lots of content creation. YouTube is one of them, right? That's a big company and lots of content's being created on YouTube. There's HBO, there's Disney, there's Netflix. There's going to be a lot of choices, but entertainment is something that everybody wants. Netflix is in the lead on entertainment. So it's an enormous category. It's something that universally is loved. Everybody loves to be entertained, and Netflix has the lead on that. I think that Disney will be one of the the primary companies that catches up with them. So I'm very bullish on both of these companies. You say that on your point number two, during hard times and layoffs, people will cancel their Netflix. I think that is the total opposite of true. I think that is the last thing people are going to cancel when they're laid off of work and they're sitting at home. Look at the coronavirus. When everybody was losing their jobs, Netflix streaming went up like crazy. They gained more accounts than they ever have in the past. Job loss is not something that hurts Netflix has never hurt Netflix. In fact, it's been a huge catalyst for them. So that's not a concern. In fact, I think these streaming entertainment companies are better defensive companies during times of high job loss than most others, just like Netflix has performed, for example, this year. And then on your last point regarding 5G, I don't think that will be a game changer for Netflix or Disney Plus really at all. It might offer some higher higher quality streams for people that are already in places where they have good internet, But a game changer would be places that are less developed that don't have great internet getting internet infrastructure. That would be a game changer because that would allow Netflix to expand in places where they otherwise couldn't. But 5G, I don't think is going to be too much of a factor. It's not something that I factored into my investment thesis on Disney Plus or HBO or any of these companies. So I wouldn't personally pay too much attention to 5G. Okay, well, on that note, I'm going to go ahead and end this episode there. If you guys haven't already, be sure to like the video share it with friends, subscribe to the channel, all that good stuff. I hope you enjoy the rest of your Labor Day weekend and I will see you guys next time.